Hello, my bubblas. I'm back. We're back together. I had a lovely spring break. Went to Seattle to do some sightseeing. Uh, that was fun. Seattle was a cool city. I'd never spent, I'd been there a bunch of times, but I'd never spent that much concentrated time there. Never really done sightseeing there, uh, but it was great. Uh, from from the flight all the way through the trip, I watched House of Gucci on the flight. That was very entertaining. I had no idea that family was so fucked up. Uh, Jared Leto was spectacular in that movie. Even Adam Driver, who I've said before, I don't, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, he was he was great. Uh, we rented a a Suburban, which is the largest vehicle imaginable. I mean, it was really, it's a stupidly large car. Driving it is like trying to pilot a boat, especially in a city. It's it's not so fun to do. Uh, went to the Chihuly glass exhibit. I'd never really been a fan of his stuff before, but it was very cool. It, it, it exceeded expectations and it was very cool to see um, explored. The Pike Place Market, the first Starbucks store. I mean, I don't really love Starbucks, but it was still cool to see the original one. Went to their new flagship store in their headquarters building where they they uh, you can hire like a, a trained barista for a coffee tasting. That was cool. Um, went to a boatyard and saw a couple of the uh, littoral combat ships that were being serviced. That was very nifty. Just, I mean, lots of cool stuff that, you know, the town aviation is like the main industry there. And, or one of them, obviously tech is the other big one, right? But uh, this is an aviation hub of the world. So went to the Museum of Flight and the Boeing Museum, both of which were amazing. Just like so much cool stuff. See, great food, in Seattle, soup dumplings at Din Tai Fung, those are a hit. Uh, Ramen Danbo was a hit. They have their own style of teriyaki, which I think is a little overrated, but was still fun to try. Um, I I was very impressed with it. We we went out one night to a an Indian restaurant and ordered naan, which is of course just bread. And uh, about halfway through discovered that there was meat in the naan, which there's not supposed to be. And that's, I mean, that's pretty outrageous. Like if you order bread and it comes out with meat that you're not expecting, if you're a vegetarian, you'd be pretty upset. If you were a kosher person, you'd be upset. Like it's just, that's not a nice surprise. And by the way, if it's meant to be there, the fact that you don't discover it until halfway through the giant thing of bread means that they, they didn't put enough of it in there. And if it's not supposed to be there and it's an accident, then that's a pretty big screw up. Uh, so anyways, had a, a big fight with the restaurant over that. And they they put up a whole argument about it and ended up giving a little bit off the bill. But I still think that was totally outrageous. Uh, anyways, uh, lots of, of serious things to discuss this week. Of course, Ukraine is still uh, under siege. And it's, can you say under siege? Does that mean they're being attacked or does under siege mean that they're actually being blockaded? Because it isn't a siege when you try to blockade the country and prevent anything from going in or out. I'm not sure. 
I think they're trying to do that to specific cities, but I, I need to understand the the proper way to use that term under siege. Anyways, they're under attack. And it's interesting, you know, there's this perception that it seems on Twitter, there's a perception that Russia is losing, that the Ukrainians are winning and Russia is losing, which of course, I, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, do you take it at face value and assume it's accurate or do you discount it? Uh, you know, I, I, I wrote yesterday about how there is this guy, Samo Berja, uh, who who seems to think that uh, we're losing the war, or Ukraine is losing the war, and that this is just propaganda, and then there's going to be a lot of disappointment afterwards. Um, I, I think, here's how I would think about it. You've got these, you, you have this prior belief, before the war started, there's this prior belief that Russia is going to clean up. I, even Russia seemed to have perceived that, right? You, you have to imagine Putin thought, I can just mop the floor with these guys and I'll be out of there in three days. Now, I didn't think that. If you recall, what I said for months was, Putin can't invade with an army this small because he wouldn't stand a chance. Now, I was wrong because he did invade with an army that small, but he doesn't seem to stand a chance. So I'm not sure it was the fait, fait accompli. Is that how you say it? Fait accompli? I'm not sure it was the fait accompli that a lot of others thought that this victory by Russia was, was a given. But it certainly seemed like Russia was bigger and more powerful and had a much stronger army, that they were professional and well-trained. I mean, there's this perception that Russia's military is top-notch. I mean, this was the Soviet Union. They, it, like, I think that is a, a perception. But it seems that that is not the case. It seems that he's got lots of these conscripts who don't know anything and they have minimal training. Uh, he's, his army is undermanned. It seems that they're having equipment problems. They're using these unsecured radios, which is how they figure out where the generals are and then get to shoot the generals. Uh, I mean, that's how the, you know, the Ukrainians shoot the generals. I, it just seems like whatever you thought of Russia's military, you better take those assumptions down a notch because they've clearly disappointed relative to those expectations, I think, right? The, the, so, so, so clearly they're, they're disappointing. According to Twitter and the, 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 the press, such as it is, but on the other hand, one could maybe make an argument, which I'm not sure how credible it is, but you could make an argument that this is all really optimistic and that, in fact, Russia is winning and it's just not being reported, but that, in fact, they're winning and, and this is optimistic, right? So that's, that's the tough thing here is because it, it seems so crazy that Russia would be losing, it makes us doubt the veracity 
of information that says otherwise. So what do we what do we do, right? How do we accept that David is beating Goliath? Isn't that just something that happens in movies, in in fairy tales that the small guy defeats the big guy? So, you know, to me, do we overweight at a, a, a prior assumption that Russia was stronger and then ignore all of the reports coming from Twitter and the press that the Ukrainians are holding them off? Or do we discount those prior assumptions and overweight the reports from the battle zone, knowing that they could be spin and propaganda? Do we discount our prior beliefs and overweight the new assumptions? And I just don't know. But my instinct is, my prior belief was, this is an undermanned army for Russia to attack with. And now Russia attacked with this small army and is losing. So I don't find it that shocking, but I understand where the skepticism would come from. Now that said, there are millions of Ukrainian refugees who are fleeing the country. It seems like more than 5% of the population of the country before the war started has already left. Many of those people will never come back to Ukraine. That means the country will never be the same. I mean, even if half those people return, the country will be poorer, it will be worse off. People will emigrate elsewhere, they'll find jobs, they'll find housing, and they'll live elsewhere. It seems, and, and we've talked about this on, on, on the show before, it seems that other countries in Europe are welcoming them with, with wide open arms. Countries that normally are very hostile to refugees are welcoming them. Poland and Hungary, I mean, remember how, how, how the Poles, the Poles were, were so... Uh, uh, upset about all of the North African and Syrian refugees who were showing up at their door. I mean, they they really they just they didn't want Muslims, right? That's what it comes down to. They didn't want brown people and Muslims. That's why they were closed to them. But now you've got white Christian people streaming through the doors, and they're opening their doors and they're saying, "Come on in and come work." I'm sure there'll be some backlash at some point, but for now, there's a lot of receptivity to it. But that still means that Ukraine will never be the same. I I also have to question this. Russia seemed, before the war, like one of their main goals was a, a promise by Ukraine that they wouldn't join NATO. And so if Russia at this point, after having caused all of this devastation in Ukraine, if they say, okay, here, peace talks, just give us a commitment you won't join NATO and we'll fuck off and, and, and leave you alone. And Zelensky can still be president and you can do whatever you want. If that was the peace deal, on the one hand, you'd say, well, Russia didn't walk away with much. But on the other hand, you'd say, well, Ukraine just got devastated and they gave up something that they could have just committed to a month ago without all of this devastation. So I, I don't know. Is that such a win for Ukraine? Is that is that just giving that up 
I mean, I know it's not a big give, maybe, but it seems like they could have done it a month ago. I continue to believe that the U.S. and NATO should not be putting boots on the ground in this conflict. I continue to believe that the U.S. and NATO should not be actively fighting here. And so all of those who are calling for a no-fly zone, which no-fly zone is just, uh, it's almost like a euphemism for U.S. join the war. So if you're calling for that, if you're calling for the U.S. to go directly into head-to-head war with Russia, I don't think that's a great idea. Because if you don't think that that will very quickly degenerate into a nuclear conflict, you're delusional. And that's not a good outcome. That's a terrible outcome. And so I get that saying, you know, calling for a no-fly zone has seemed to become like the trendy cause of the moment. But that is not what we need. That is not a good idea or a good outcome at all. So, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, Amy Schumer suggested that Zelensky should be at the Oscars. You know, he should, he should like zoom in to the Oscars so that all of the assembled celebrities can hear him make a plea for a no-fly zone. That's not a good idea. Well, first of all, who gives a shit about the Oscars? Nobody even watches the Oscars anymore. Could you imagine being stupid enough to watch the fucking Oscars? I don't think anybody's watched that in a decade or more. But also, could you imagine this? Like, it, it, that, that, that this guy, you know, at the Oscars, he's like, we need a no-fly zone. And all of these pea-brain celebrities are cheering and applauding. I mean, it's just, it's, it's insane to think about it. Like, yeah, nuclear war, let's do that. So anyways, it's hard to gauge exactly what is happening in Ukraine. I, you know, CNN International is doing pretty good reporting, but there doesn't seem to be a ton of great reporting on the ground there still. I know there's a handful of folks who have gone into the country and are filing from Ukraine, but it's, it's tough. You know, it sort of reminds me of the 2016 presidential election, in a sense, because I think there was this narrative on Twitter at the time of like that, 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 and, and in the press that Hillary Clinton's victory was also inevitable, that it was a fait accompli, that she was the obvious winner. And so you had these reporters writing stories from their apartments in Brooklyn as if it was just a given that Trump and the, the, the heathens that he represented would lose. But they didn't make an effort to go out and actually talk to people in the rest of the country, right? If you drove around in Iowa, you would know there were only Trump signs on people's lawns. And Hillary Clinton's victory was not inevitable, but it was very easy and comforting for people to just sit at home and trust this narrative. And so when when Trump won that election, it was stunning. Many people doubted it could be true. In fact, for years, 
they chalked it up to all kinds of malfeasance. The Russian collusion and Facebook and and the Cambridge Analytica. I mean, it was all stupid stuff. It was he won. Hillary Clinton was unlikable and ran a bad campaign. And Trump won, and people didn't like it, and they refused to believe it. And by the way, four years later, when Trump lost, his people did the same thing. Ah, it's fake votes. It's voter fraud. It's, I mean, it was the same bullshit. Neither of those narratives was correct. But, of course, if you believed the former, that there was some Russian collusion or whatever, it was somehow like that was a sexy narrative. That was a, a logical thing to believe. If you believed that Trump's narrative was right, then you were a conspiracy theorist and a lunatic, right? That's how it was branded. But I see that, that parallel here where I don't know if the reporting, like some guy just tweeting from London or from New York about how the Ukrainians are winning, what the fuck does he know? You need the on-the-ground reporting. Boots on the ground matters. Being a real journalist and a real reporter matters. Not some dickhead like me who's just sitting in, 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 in a little studio recording a podcast. So I, I don't know. I mean, I can, I can guess. I can hope. I think Putin's an asshole. I think this is a terrible idea. I've been writing about this for years, that Putin was inevitably going to try to do this. And now he's done it. And, and it seems like he's losing. You know, I, I wrote yesterday that in sports, you have this, in sports betting, you have this concept of a point spread, right? You say, like, if, if, if you know, the, the, the Lakers play the Knicks, you say the Lakers are expected to win by eight points or something. Because you have to handicap things. And if you were to handicap a fight between Russia and Ukraine before the fight happened, you would have said that Russia is the clear favorite. And so if there's some sort of a point spread here, without question, Ukraine is winning against the spread. They might even be winning outright, but they're certainly winning against the spread. They're winning versus any prior expectation. Now, I think they're winning partly because they're getting so much support from NATO and from the US. It's coming from outside the country. And so we're saying, no, we don't have boots on the ground. But by the way, we're shipping you tons of weapons and we're giving you all the intel that you wouldn't have on your own. But fine. That's great. They're winning. So all in, I would assign probably a 75% probability to this Twitter narrative that the Ukrainians are winning and a 25% probability to the idea that this is just wishful thinking and they're actually getting lit up. There's another company I want to tell you about, and this one is a little bit strange as a sponsor for The Lee Show, given that I've been sober for more than 21 years. But the company is called VinoVest, and it is the easiest place to invest in wine. VinoVest was founded by some smart venture capitalists from Silicon Valley in partnership with master sommeliers and data scientists. I'm not, what is a master sommelier? I'm not really sure. I once went out to dinner on vacation and the sommelier opened a bottle of wine for the people I was with. And he did this 
whole theatrical show of sampling it himself before pouring it for anyone else. And this guy, he took one sip of the wine and then he spit it out really dramatically. And he goes, oh, this is like battery acid. I mean, the whole show was very, very bizarre. Uh, so maybe that guy helped start this company. Is that is that what it takes to be a master sommelier? I don't know. Uh, why should you invest in wine? I mean, I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal back in 2005 about how super smart people were diversifying into alternative asset classes like art and wine. Art's a tricky one because the valuable stuff is unattainably expensive for most people, and maybe you can like fractionalize it, but it's tricky. But wine investing has been a great trade for a long time. You know, the excellent wines are scarce. They increase in value over time. As an asset class, it's been exceptional. Uh, according to VinoVest, wine has one-third the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equity markets over the past 30 years with a 10.6% annualized return. I don't know where they get those numbers from, but I take it that they've done their research. Uh, wine prices have outpaced inflation. Inflation is is rampant. You want to outpace inflation. Wine has been recession resistant. You can even invest in wine using cryptocurrency. Boy, does that feel futuristic. So the link to join VinoVest is in the show notes. Just go to zen.ai slash the Lee show and the number zero. Go check it out. Get rich being a wine investor. One of the highlights of the past week was the New York Times running a story that finally acknowledged what anyone with half a brain knew all along, which is that the Hunter Biden laptop was real. Now, let's do a, a very quick review of, of this. I've talked about it a lot before. It's something that we've discussed on, uh, on the Thursday night live show many, many times. But let's do a, a quick review. So Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, was working for two different companies as a consultant. Now, Hunter Biden's son seems to have not known anything about anything. Like, there's no good reason you would hire him as a consultant other than his last name is Biden. But but Hunter and his uncle and a buddy of his were doing these, quote, consulting projects. One of them was for the biggest energy company in Ukraine, which is called Burisma. They were paying him something on the order of about $100,000 a month. I've seen some people say $200,000 a month. They're paying him a lot of money to consult. I don't know what kind of consulting he was doing, but they're paying him a lot of money. Separately, there was a Chinese company that was paying him a lot of money to consult. It's pretty clear that the Chinese company was paying because they wanted a photo op with his father. Uh, even the Ukrainian business uh, posted a photo uh, you know, with Joe Biden at one point on their website before they were asked to take it down. I mean, it, it was clear that they were pay paying Hunter Biden for access, right? He was essentially lobbying on behalf of these foreign companies and, and foreign entities with his dad. So, so he's doing all this stuff, and he's got a laptop that has all of his emails. It has all of his correspondence, 
and lots of personal photos on it. And the laptop breaks. And uh, Hunter brings it to a computer repair store in Delaware, where he lives. And he says, hey, my laptop's broken. Can you fix it? And the guy says, sure, no problem. Sign this. It's our like waiver. And it says on the waiver, if you don't come to claim your personal property within nine months, it becomes ours. So Hunter signs this. The guy fixes the laptop, calls him multiple times. Hunter doesn't reply. Emails him. Hunter doesn't reply. After nine months, as the waiver says, the laptop belongs to them. So Hunter loses his laptop, and uh, it sits there, and the, the guy who owns the computer store in Delaware finally decides to take a look. And he discovers that there's tons of photos of Hunter Biden smoking crack with hookers. There's pictures of him passed out with a pipe in his mouth. There's video of him getting up to no good with all sorts of women of the night, ladies of the night. I don't know. What, what do people say anymore? Anyways, lots of, of, of embarrassing stuff. Lots of emails all about these deals that he's doing around the world. There was emails about a deal in Africa where he was getting paid 10% of the equity in a uh, in an African mining business without having done anything. I mean, it was clearly a kickback to him. And uh, the laptop somehow makes its way to Rudy Giuliani before the presidential election last year. Rudy Giuliani goes to a bunch of newspapers. His reputation was a little tattered at that point. His credibility was kind of shot. He goes to a bunch of newspapers and they're like, we're not interested, nothing to do here. Except the New York Post. The New York Post runs a massive expose all about the laptop. And because, of course, the big tech industry does not want Trump to win re-election, this was silenced. So Twitter immediately locked the New York Post out of their account and prevented anyone from sharing anything about this story. You couldn't share a link to the story. It was all blocked. The New York Post, the oldest newspaper in this country, was blocked. Was there any reason given? No. Did anyone say, yes, you, 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 you can't publish this because it's clearly false? No. Instead, you had a whole bunch of pro-Biden uh, uh, you know, intelligence, I say that in, in air quotes, intelligence folks who wrote a letter, I think there were 51 of them or something, and they wrote a letter saying that this smells like Russian disinformation. Was it disinformation? No, no proof. It just, ah, it's our gut feeling on this. And so any story about this was blocked. The New York Post was blocked for two weeks. This was a very important story. And you know full well that if this had been Ivanka or Donald Trump Jr., it would have been the front page of everything for weeks. But that's not the narrative that big tech wants to allow. And big tech starting to function a little bit like a utility that is quasi-regulated by the government, they know who they need to listen to. And so 
When the government says jump, Twitter says how high. So Twitter blocks the New York Post. They block they block any any sharing of this story. But there was not a single shred of evidence that it was disinformation or misinformation or bullshit or anything. It was real. And not only that, the people who were on the other side of those emails authenticated that these were the exact emails that they had received. So in fact, there was a lot of evidence that the whole thing was completely authentic, and it was. And now here we are, 18 months later, and finally, the New York Times ran an article, and in the 24th paragraph, talk about burying the lead, in the 24th paragraph of an article about how how Hunter Biden has been indicted and is in trouble for all of his tax evasion, there is a, uh, uh, a quick sentence slipped in there about how the laptop was real. But what's the recourse here? What do we do about this? What do we do about the fact that big tech is completely in bed with one specific governmental party? And anyone who says to you, well, it's not censorship if it's not the government blocking you, right? If the government says that you can't say this, then it's censorship. But Twitter is a private company and they have the right to do this and blah, blah, blah. Shut the fuck up. I mean, if Twitter is doing this at the behest of the government, how can you say that that's not censorship? I mean, obviously it is. So yeah, when, when, when big tech is in bed with government, that's scary. That's bad. That is stifling of real, open, free speech. And, and just because it is happening through some kind of informal backroom deal between the Democratic Party and the tech monopolies doesn't make it acceptable. So what's the solution? I believe, truly believe, that these utilities, Twitter, Facebook, the cloud providers, I believe that these utilities need to have specific requirements, that they cannot control content because of speech. Just because they don't like you doesn't mean they're allowed to control what you can say. Because you get into crazy bias then. And if they're going to control what you say, they are expressing an editorial decision. If they're going to express an editorial decision about what is acceptable to say and what is not acceptable to say, then they should be open to libel suits. Right? Think about the difference between, say, uh, NBC News. And Twitter. NBC News decides which stories to run. They say, this is interesting, this is not interesting. They send some journalists out to go report on the story, and they say, here's what happened, here's the facts. So-and-so beat up his wife, or so-and-so killed somebody, or, you know, there's a tornado. They report some information, and there's an editorial decision about what's interesting to their readers and what they're going to report, but they go out and report some information. And if they say something about a person that is 
willfully and maliciously untrue, then they're liable. They can get in a lot of trouble. If they say something that is damaging to your reputation and they do it knowing that they're lying, they can get in trouble because they are making the choice, the editorial choice of what to publish. Now let's contrast that with, say, the phone company. The phone company doesn't know what you say on the phone. If you get on the phone, if I call somebody and I say something that is maliciously untrue, AT&T doesn't get in trouble for that phone call happening on their network. I could get in trouble for it, but AT&T cannot. They have protection as a utility because they're not exercising any editorial control over what I can say and what I cannot say. Whereas the, the, the media company like NBC or the New York Times or whoever, they are exercising that editorial control. And so they are liable if they say something that is false. So where does Twitter or Facebook fall there? My instinct would be that they are more like the phone company. It's a platform. If I decide to say something maliciously untrue on Twitter, I'm liable, but Twitter is just a platform. But instead, there has been this immense pressure on the tech companies to try to regulate what is happening. And so you have this, this very bizarre fact-checking movement, which takes true statements and then labels them with missing context. Missing context just means this is true, but I don't like the narrative, or this is true but it's inconvenient to the political party that I support. That's what missing context means here. And so there is this, this effort at these big platforms, Twitter and Facebook and others, to place more and more control over speech. And if they're doing that, they're going to be exercising editorial discretion about what is right, what is wrong, about who's allowed to speak and who's not. They're exerting real political power, saying that a story that is damaging to the Biden campaign can't run. That's an editorial decision. And, by the way, they made the wrong decision. There's no reason that these platforms are always right. There's no reason that they have are, are, are blessed with some particular brand of genius so that they know exactly what to say. There's just an assumption that if you voted for Trump, you're an idiot, you're a dangerous conspiracy theorist. And there's this assumption that, of course, Trump colluded and the PP tape and 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 the, the Mueller report and the Mueller or whatever he's called and 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 all this stuff. There's there there's all these things that they're convinced were real and and that it's if you believe in any of this stuff, you're like some dangerous conspiracy theorist. And then somehow there's a belief that all the stuff on the other side, the the Hillary's emails or Hunter Biden's laptop, that it's all fabricated and it's all bullshit. But of course it's not. So anyone who thinks that somehow that team 
is always right or that their control over the tech platforms is not exercising editorial judgment, you're wrong. Of course they are. And by the way, why is there an assumption that anyone who is consuming the news needs to have all of these labels slapped on everything lest they make some kind of bad conclusion in their brains? Right? Why is there an assumption that that somehow the 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 galaxy brains working at Twitter and Facebook are mentally superior and that the the ordinary Joe Schmo who's consuming the media will immediately make the wrong conclusion if they don't have a label slapped on that that says missing context. It's insulting. It's offensive. People aren't stupid. Why would anyone want to consume media that is constantly assuming that they are dumb? So I really take a lot of, of, of umbrage at this Twitter controlling speech. I think that Twitter should be regulated like a utility. You can write whatever the fuck you want. Say what you want. It's up to you. If you write something that is clearly libelous, you're liable. But that's on you. And I don't expect Twitter to police misinformation. That is where we get into trouble. So the New York Times admits that Hunter Biden's laptop is real, and we're just expected to go, okay, okay, yeah, sure, great. Now here we are, long time after the election. Thanks for for telling us what we already knew. We haven't even plumbed the depths of Hunter Biden's laptop, by the way. There's a lot more to uncover here. I mean, it's, it's really, it's been coming out in, in dribs and drabs so far, but there is a lot more to uncover from Hunter Biden's laptop. When I uh, started this podcast, I did a lot of research on the tools that you need to record a podcast. Like I didn't know anything about it. I read a bunch of websites. There's lots of competition out there. I tried just about every product I could find. What I found was some of the tools were super complicated. You needed to be like a trained audio engineer to make them work. That's not me. Those tools were not for me. There were other tools that tried to oversimplify things. But it was so much that you would lose control over the recording and the editing. That was useless to me as well. After trying out just about everything, I decided that Zencaster was the best option by far. And I've been using Zencaster to record the Lee Show. Uh, that's what I'm using right now. It lets me record sound. It lets me record video. I have separate audio and video tracks for me and any guests that I have, which makes editing so much easier. They provide a secured cloud backup, so you never lose your interviews the way that Hunter Biden lost his laptop. It's super easy to use. There's nothing to download. When I'm going to record an episode with a guest, I just send them a link and we start recording and that's it. Listeners of The Lee Show can go to zen.ai slash The Lee Show and get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster. And most importantly, 
If you've ever thought about starting your own podcast and you just want to chat about it, you want to learn about the process, how to do it, you want any advice, just let me know. I'm happy to be a resource for you. You know, the the Hunter Biden thing is in many ways reminiscent of the Lancet letter when COVID started. Let, let me Let me draw the parallel for you. So Hunter Biden has this laptop and all of these supposed intelligence people wrote this letter that they said uh, uh, indicated that this was Russian disinformation. And in the letter, these former intel officials, as they referred to themselves, didn't actually say that it was false. In fact, their letter had no evidence to suggest that the emails were falsified or that Russia had anything to do with them. This was just suspicion that they intuited. Right. I'll read a quote from the letter. It said, we want to emphasize that we do not know if the emails provided to the New York Post by President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are genuine or not, and that we do not have evidence of Russian involvement, just that our experience makes us deeply suspicious that the Russian government played a significant role in this case. So they wrote this letter, but they didn't really know anything about anything. And similarly... When COVID started, if you recall, there was a group of scientists. So they wrote a letter to the publication, The Lancet, March 7th, 2020. So they wrote a letter to The Lancet right as COVID was starting, saying that COVID came from a bat and migrated to people, and it definitely didn't come from a Chinese lab. And anyone who says that this came from a Chinese lab is a dangerous racist and conspiracy theorist. Literally, there's a quote here. It says, conspiracy theorists, conspiracy theories do nothing but create fear, rumors, and prejudice that jeopardize, jeopardize our global collaboration in the fight against this virus. So a whole bunch of zoologists and biologists wrote this letter. And then it turned out, one, they didn't know anything about anything. Two, it turned out that the whole thing was organized by a guy named Peter Daszak, and Peter Daszak was the guy who had been securing funding for this Wuhan Institute of Virology. And so, of course, he didn't want it to look like the Wuhan Institute of Virology had screwed up in releasing COVID because that would make him look bad. So he organized a whole bunch of scientists to write a letter that said, anyone who tells you that this came from a lab is a dangerous conspiracy theorist and a racist without, of course, disclosing his conflict of interest, which was very significant. Why do we keep defaulting to this way of thinking that somehow the experts know what they're talking about? Whether they're called intelligence officials, the scientists, they don't know anything about anything. And yet they anoint themselves as the keepers of the truth, of the capital T truth. They know the truth. And only they can tell you the science. They know that you have to get your COVID shot on this date facing north and eating a blueberry. And then you have to get the next one three months later. Blah, blah. It's all bullshit. They don't know anything about anything. I accept that there is true expertise on subject matters that can exist, 
But expertise is very different from opinion and policy. How many times have I said on this show, there's a reason that we don't elect the epidemiologists? They exist to inform the politicians that we elect. And then the politicians make decisions. That doesn't mean the politicians are always going to make good decisions. But expertise does not qualify you alone to make decisions. These experts lie. They get things wrong all the time. I mean, we've almost gotten to the point where when an article quotes experts, it really means you probably shouldn't listen to what's written here. It's become like a euphemism, expert. It's like a new way of calling someone an imbecile. Oh, look at that guy. He's an expert. What, a, what an expert. And so why do we trust that the folks at Twitter or Facebook have such expertise that they can bestow upon us mere mortals? Why do they have the right to regulate what people can say? This is going to be one of the major legal and policy debates over the next few years. And it's very, very important that we get this right.